Again, I want to welcome each of you to our gathering today. Uh, If I don't know you, my name's Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here at Center Church. Uh, And as we get settled in, I want you to go ahead, if you have your Bible, to open it uh, to Esther chapter 1. Where today, uh, we're going to finish out the chapter, but we're going to continue looking at the beginnings of this story in our series that we've entitled, Unnamed. And so what I want to do is you turn there, is, and uh, for those of you, since this is week two of this series, I, I want to take just a moment to remind us of a couple of things. I want to recap from, la- and then I want to recap from last week, because I, I believe that since this is a building story, what we saw last week is going to play into how we see the story move forward today. And so first and foremost, remember that Esther is a story of faith that calls us to trust in God even when we don't see, hear, or feel Him. You see, something we need to know, whether it's the book of Esther or our own lives, and I believe the book of Esther points and reveals things about our own lives, is this, is that God is at work, and the story of Esther shows this, even though His name is never mentioned. And so if you were with us last week, Jeremy kicked off this series by laying out uh, the history behind the story. And then what he did was he presented a theme that that is really going to carry us throughout our time in this book. And the theme is this. I have it up here on the screen. God has you here for a purpose. And he will always keep his promises even when you feel he is not there. Even when we feel that he is not there. And so what I want to do just for a moment is I kind of want to really within that statement and that theme, there's kind of three main things I want us to see this morning as we get ready to dive in to the rest of chapter one. And the first is that God has you here for a purpose. So as a way to kind of get us all to participate, how many of you in the room Uh, And again, this is a safe place. How many of you in the room believe today that God has you here for a purpose? Show of hands. Right? I mean, most, if not all. Like generally, yes, like you are breathing, you uh, in your work, there might be purpose, even as we sang songs of worship, even as we sit under teaching, which I believe, again, is an act of us worshiping God. Man, we can generally say, yes, we believe that God has us here for a purpose. When I was really young in my faith, I used to go out a lot and pass out tracts and share the gospel. Um, and one of the first questions I would always ask is, hey, do you know that God has, do you believe that God has a plan for your life? And man, I, I, like 98% of the time, that answer was always yes, Right? Now, it could have been yes, because they actually believed, and maybe even your yes today is because you actually believe, yes, God has me here for a purpose. I believe there is a plan for my life, because guess what? Uh, the Bible tells me, right? The gospel has informed it. I have a new identity in Christ. But I know there were some that they answered that question because they believed, yes, there is purpose. Yes, there is a plan for my life, because I am God. Now, they may not say that. But the way their life would be lived, it, it would reveal that they believed that. That they were their own little gods that were building their own little kingdoms that was trying to create their own purpose, right? But you see, while we answer that question, and for most, if not all of you, as you raised your hand, 
The thing about uh, that question and the way we answer it is, man, even if we can answer, yes, I know that I'm here for a purpose. Does that always make it easy to trust or see the purpose in the moment? Like, no, right? Like faith in God and his purposes for your life at times are hard to see. At times are difficult to trust in. At times they are really, really hard and difficult to understand, right? How many of you found yourself believing and saying, God, I trust in you, but I don't really understand why this is happening. Anyone ever in prayer say, why God? Or where, where are you, God? And so we know that in the midst of answering this question with a yes, and then at times it's hard to see, to trust in. It's easy to let, to be tempted to let doubt creep in. It's hard to, to understand because guess what? God's ways are not our ways. It reminded me of our time in Hebrews 11 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. So we see that God has you here for a purpose. But the second part of that statement is that he will always keep his promises. You see, I love this because in the midst of having faith that, that, that we having faith that we are here for a purpose. Well, what we see here is that it promise is that the promises of God are what keeps us grounded in the midst of the unknown. You know, one of those promises being I will never leave you or what forsake you, right? But in the midst of that struggle of the unknown, of, of, of the understanding, of, of uh, man, uh, having moments where we doubt or wrestle, how do we know that he'll never leave us or forsake us? How, how do we know this to be true, especially in the midst of difficulty? Well, the reason we know is because he was forsaken for us. But he wasn't just forsaken for us. He rose in victory and now sits in all authority. Like, think about this for a moment. Jesus has authority over the entire cosmos. A cosmos that scientists believe is just ever expanding. And yet, even in the midst of that, He has authority and sits in control and has purpose and can be trusted and makes a promise that he will not forsake you even in the midst of your circumstance. You can trust that God is working all things according to his purpose for you and for me, for our good and his glory. And then we get the last part, which is uh, we can trust in his promises. We can trust that there is purpose for our lives, even When we feel he's not there. Again, we already talked about this previously, but in life, we all have moments of struggle where we doubt. We all have moments where we allow the situation to form a belief that the situation, the circumstance is bigger and more powerful than God. All the while, we feel that if God as if God is not there. But but that's not true. And I love the example that Jeremy gave last week. Where he brought Avery up and he said, look, Avery, I want you to remember that I'm, uh, I'm your dad and I need you to, I'm going to promise you that the keys are always in front of you, right? And then he said, where's the keys? And she said, they're in front of me. And he said, how do you know? And she said, because I can see them. He said, that's right. How do you know that? Well, because you told me they'd always be in front of me. Now close your eyes. Where are the keys? Well, they're in front of me. 
He's shaking the keys. Well, how do you know? Because I can hear them. But also, how do you know? Because you told me they'd always be in front of me. And he quit shaking them. He said, where are the keys? Well, they're in front of me. Well, how do you know? And she reached out and she said, I can feel them. And he said, but how do you know? And he said, because as my dad, you said that they would always be there. And he held them away. He said, where are the keys? And she said, I I can't feel them, but they're in front of me. And he said, how do you know? Because dad, you said that they would always be in front of me. You see, that's how we can trust and, 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 and believe and have faith that, that God has purpose for us. That we can trust in His promises even when we feel He's not there. And so it was this, with this theme that we dove into Esther chapter 1. Last week where we saw that God's people are under the rule of, a, of, of the Persian king Ahasuerus or Xerxes, right? Now, now, the reason they're under his rule is due to their sin, but for the purpose of them turning to God and God bringing them back to himself. You see, even in the midst of their captivity, God is using it. It is a work. He is working even in the consequences of their sin. And guess what? Today, he is even at work in the consequences of our, sin, our own sin, using it to bring us back. So last week we saw the character of a pagan king that reveals to us how Jesus is a greater king. First, we saw that Xerxes was arrogant and proud, while Jesus, man, he was not so. He walked in humility. He humbled himself even to the point of death. Secondly, we saw that that Xerxes sought security and wealth, while Jesus says, hey, no matter how much you have, wealth is not enough. And then lastly... We saw Xerxes practice unwise. We saw that Xerxes was unwise and impulsive. You see, Jesus was not so. Jesus was calculated and driven and he knew where he was going. He submitted to the Father's will. He denied himself. And guess what? He calls us to the same. Timothy Kane in his book on Esther says that at the beginning of Esther 1, we see a picture of a king that exemplifies the desires that the world wants for us. I want us to keep this in mind as we continue today. Cain says that the world wants you to give your life to try to get what the king has. The world calls you to do whatever it takes to become more like the king. But guess what? The book of Esther comes to unmask the facade and show us the truth. Even though God is unnamed in the story of Esther, even though we can't see, feel, touch, we we get to experience and see God working providentially all throughout this book. And what he's doing over and over and over again and how we're going to end our time today is we're going to see is that it's pointing us to the one who would come, the greater king that would come that would remove the veil from our eyes. That, 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 that will swallow up death, that will wipe away every tear. And that as we saw in Revelation last week and we're going to see in Isaiah at the end of our time today that he is, he's preparing a feast for us. It's this facade and truth dichotomy that will be exposed in our time today. As we see the 187 day party come to a close. And as this party comes to a close in a very dramatic fashion, we're going to see three marks of foolishness that are going to point us to the good news of Jesus as our true and wise King. And so with that, let's read verses 10 through 12 where we see our first instance of foolishness. It says this, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, 
He commanded, bear with me, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, uh, Abagatha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Xerxes to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti, listen to this, verse 12, Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Okay, so what we find here is the culmination of 187 days that were solely meant to boast the ego of King Xerxes. And so remember, if you look earlier in the chapter, 180 of those days are meant to build up his ego by displaying, as the text states, the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness and authority to the who's who of the kingdom. You see, to cap it all off, as if, uh, as we saw last week, he throws a, a week-long feast for everyone in the citadel where they are to eat and drink as much as they please. You see, it would be on the seventh, on day seven of this feast, at the culmination of 187 days that were all about this so-called king who holds so-called glory and so-called honor and wealth that the king's drunk. The text states that his heart is merry with wine. You see, after reading the text, I believe that this king is both drunk with wine, but also this king is drunk on himself. You see, this king in his stupor is drunk on his own Kool-Aid. He's just guzzling it down. And this, as we'll see, is going to be a big, big problem in the life of Xerxes because the ego, like if you just think about it, just your natural ego causes enough problems in and of itself, right? On the other side of that, drunkenness causes many, many problems and issues. You mix the egos and drunkenness together, it's just going to be foolishness. Like that's what happens. Which is exactly what we see in this story because the king gets this great idea. And so what he does, he says, hey, I've got this great idea. And he brings his seven eunuchs who served in his presence, which really just means that these were yes men that would do anything the king said without question. He says, guys, come here. I got a great idea. You, you thought the 186 days were great. Man, 187, we're going to just, man, we're going to send this thing off with a bang, right? Like this is going to be it. This will be, this will be the highlight, the pinnacle of everything that's happened. He says, I want you to bring Queen Vashti. I want you to bring her into my presence and in the presence of all those that are here. And tell her to bring a royal crown with her. You see, what the king wants to do is he says, I'm going to cap off this feast by showing off the beauty of his most prized possession because he says, she, the text says she was lovely to look at. Now, the thing about it, and there's a lot of debate back and forth about what this actually meant and what actually was going to happen. And while we don't know exactly what that would entail, some believe that it would, have been, uh, it would have been beyond simply a demeaning display of possessive arrogance 
And it actually probably would have materialized into some form of lust-filled debauchery. Again, you add ego and drunkenness together, it's probably not going to be great. Some scholars believe that whenever he says, hey, bring the queen and her crown, he means the queen should only be wearing her crown. So that I can display. He, he, his, her, her own husband says, look, the thing that I'm only supposed to see, I want the world to see. I want to display it so that people can see and, and, and build me up. But quickly, I also want to remind us that last week in the midst of the ego-driven celebration, the, the, the celebration that we saw that the king was having while he was throwing his party, his queen was throwing a party of her own, separate from his. You see, we already see some issues in the relationships. It seems as if, hey, the queen doesn't really want to have anything to do with him. She's kind of, she's kind of over it. But again, ego and drunkenness is going to produce some foolishness. And so the eunuchs go to Queen Vashti and they say, hey, you need to come with your crown. Come to the presence of the the king. But look how she responds. She says, no, I'm good. She doesn't submit to it. She refuses the command of the king. And you see, it's, it's with that one moment, that one response, that, that, uh, that rejection takes 187 days of ego building and pops it in an instant. You see, that's the thing about the ego, is it not? It's always in need of constant refilling and no matter how big it gets, it can be popped in a split second. And we could go into Keller's Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, you know, and, and all that entails. If you haven't read it, go read it. But that's what it's about. It's about this reality that the ego is so fragile. And that we try to build it and build it and build it. And yet it can be popped in an instant. This is what we see in the story. But also, I think this should make us reflect on, on our own lives. As you hear this story, as you see what's taking place, man, what are you building your life upon? Like if the king's 187 days can't sustain and meet the deep need of his heart, what say you in your life? Because I don't know about you, but I don't have the land that he had. I don't have the army that he had. I don't have the wealth that he had. So what about your life? Like, will getting the respect and obedience you feel you deserve and ruthlessly demand from others really satisfy, be at home or at work? Will that relationship meet your biggest need? Will more zeros in your bank account actually bring you comfort and peace? You see, the king had it all. And boom, in an instant, the facade crumbled and he was left with a shattered view of himself and the mini kingdom he had built. Like, did any of you feel that today? Like you're building and building and building, and yet all the while you were wrecked by fear that in a moment it could all crumble? And if that's you today, my encouragement is that you would just let that thing crumble. Just let it crumble and fall upon the grace of Jesus.
guess what? Your kingdom won't last. My kingdom won't last. Our little kingdoms, our desires, our ego, our selfishness won't produce what it promises. It never does. Because guess what? It's never enough. But Christ's will, His kingdom is eternal. And so the queen refuses. But in her refusal, look at the foolish reaction of the king. It says that he became enraged and anger burned within him. Now a few things I think we need to note about this interaction. First, the king showed foolishness by sending others to go get his wife. What we see is that instead of seeing her as someone to be loved and cherished, Xerxes only viewed Vashti as a means to his own ends. He saw her beauty not as a gift to be cherished and loved, but as a way to promote how great he was. But the second thing we need to note is that we are a lot like the foolish kings, foolish king at times, are we not? Like how do you commonly respond when your ego, when your kingdom and your self-serving rule gets threatened and exposed? I think if we're honest, we respond just like the king. We act like a child, either internally or externally, and we throw a big old fit, don't we? And this brings me to my last point regarding this foolish reaction. You see, when the king refused, the queen refused the king's request, Xerxes actually should have seen it as a grace to his life rather than an exercise in rebellion. And guess what? We all need people in our lives that are willing and ready to call us out when we get a little too big for our britches. Husbands, when your wife gives you that look, you know it, right? Heed that look. Because she knows that if you keep going, you're going to make a fool of yourself. Like I get it all the time, okay? Because guess what? Sometimes I'm drinking my Kool-Aid. And praise God, Haley's not. She loves me. Like, she really loves me. And sometimes I'm like, oh gosh, why? <laughs> but she doesn't drink my Kool-Aid. And she'll give me that look. And sometimes I'll see that look. And I'll say, okay. And other times I say, nope, we're going to keep going. Let's go. Now, I say that for husbands. Wives, the same thing, right? Your husband gives you, maybe it's the other side. Maybe you're the one that he has to give the look to. Kids, heed your parents' wisdom. Guess what? You don't know it all. I know you believe you do. And I know culture around you tells you you do. Because if you don't, you can just Google it, right? But you don't. Also, your parents don't either, but they likely know more about life than you do, especially if they're pursuing Jesus. Heed their wisdom. Parents, pursue Jesus and then proclaim his wisdom. Disciples of Jesus, do you have people in your life that are willing to say, hey, you're kind of drinking your own Kool-Aid right now? I see it all over your face. Your teeth are stained with it. 
It's on your shirt. You spilled it everywhere. If you don't, get them, ask them, and receive it when they bring it. That's not what this foolish king does. Rather, he burns with anger and rage. And in verses 13 through 20, that I'm not going to, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read through today, we see the results of foolish wisdom. You see, in the midst of his rage, he goes to a group of men who, who it says they knew the times. So, so what does it mean to know the times? Well, first, we see that these men were versed in the law. Not God's law, but the law of man. But, but think about it again, like it's not just man's law, actually, it's a law that's meant to serve the means of the king. But the second thing about this knowing the time, these men are, are cunning and smart. Guess what? They know that, that knowing the time means that, that power is key and for them to stay in power in their positions, guess what? They need to be obedient and, and, and tickle the ear of the king. And so in his rage and his drunkenness, the king asks a group of drunk yes men what he can do according to the law in response to the queen's refusal. Another way to say this is the king comes to him and says, hey, I need to save face and I need to show her. So what do I do? Now again, this is the same king who just threw a 187 day party for himself. And so the question itself is ludicrous because guess what? The king can actually make any law he wants. You see, I think the real reason he asks these men is because he's a lazy coward that talks a big game but wants everyone else to do the dirty work for him. He's like a child who runs and tattles on their sibling hoping, hoping that the parent will come down hard on the one who's wronged them. Show them. And so let's continue by seeing how these men address this situation in 16 through 20. It says this. We're going to see this picture of foolish wisdom on display. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him. And let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Xerxes. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king was proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it was vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Alright, so remember the king's question. The, the, the king's question is really more focused on how he can save face than it is about punishing the queen, although both are in view here. But then look at the foolish wisdom that is presented to the king. 
You see, these men think upon the question and Memucan, being filled with liquid courage, takes the refusal by Vashti and he turns it into a matter of, matter of national security. Like, look at his logic. If this news gets out, if this is made known to all women, it will make all women walk in rebellion, contempt, and wrath towards their husbands. Again, look at the extreme, the, the extreme nature projects the behavior associated with drunkenness. Like it's a big deal. They, they, they believe that this is such a big deal that it will destroy the very fabric of everything in the kingdom if they don't snuff it out. Therefore, if it pleases the king, Memucan says, he says, send out a royal edict or order throughout all the kingdom that says women should honor their husbands both high and low alike. And then, Memucan says, oh, I've got it. I know how to deal with Vashti. Just send her away. Send her away and say, you can never be in my presence again. That'll show her. I don't know if you know, but we, Jeremy mentioned it last week. She didn't really want to be around him anyways. And then she gets this command and she says, nah, I still don't want to be around him. And they're like, well, guess what? Never again. And Okay. But the other thing that it says in the text is that they'll send someone better. As I was reading this week, the name Vashti means best. <laughs> that she's the best. Est, 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 right? <laughs> and yet they say, well, we'll get someone better in there. But guess what? Someone better does come in. And God orchestrates it. Put in someone better. See, this command, when read, I also believe as you read this, like it reveals something to us about the world that we need to realize and take note of. Guess what? There are times when the world around us will beat around the bush of wisdom that only comes from God, but at the end of the day always misses the point. Because it foolishly seeks to serve and worship creation rather than the creator. And this is what I mean. Wives honoring their husbands is a very biblical thing. According to scripture, wives are to honor and submit to their husbands. But, and this is where they miss it in all of their drunken wisdom. Along with this, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And that he gave himself up for. See, sometimes even in the church, I think we miss this. We disconnect those two things, but actually, they're deeply connected. And so husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Give of yourself. I can tell you this, if you, husband, if you pursue Jesus and out of that pursuit, love your wife the way Jesus loves you, your marriage will flourish in ways that will draw you deeper into the worship of Jesus as a couple together than you could even begin to imagine. So get off your butt and quit just sitting back and living in the foolishness of Mechumim while at the same time expecting honor if you're not willing to love and serve your wife like Jesus has served his bride. Now I could go to the other side and say wives, but just this is what's going on in the text. 
This is where Xerxes and those who claim to know the time are missing it. You see, to them, relationship is only for the service of self and ego rather than a mutual sacrifice that marriage is to be that models Christ's sacrifice for us. It's one of your greatest gospel proclaimers. Just as on the other side, like singleness is again, it is used by God for the purpose of being a great gospel proclaimer. And so these so-called wise men lay all this out. And then we get in 21 and 22. And I'm not going to read it. But what it says is we get a final response of foolishness. This final act, which is the foolish response of Xerxes. Xerxes takes all this in. The foolish wisdom pleased the king, the text says, because it was focused upon him. It put the power in his hands. It made him feel that his ego could be saved. And we do this. We look for a way to say a cutting word. We do this by shutting off, by posturing, by spreading rumors, by seeking control. Instead of going to the truth and humbling ourselves. But guess what happens? It says that they send out this edict. They say, hey, this is what's supposed to happen. Wives, honor your husband, both high and low alike. You see, all that happened in its utter foolishness, all this did was spread the news to all women in the kingdom that his wife had refused his command, thus bringing to light the very thing they were trying to keep hidden. Such is life, is it not? And again, in his response to Vashti, she gets what she likely wants. She's left alone. But also we see the beginning of God that we see the beginnings of God's providence at work that will save his people. And so in the midst of the foolishness of the king and his kingdom, as we hear this story, what is this story, which again doesn't mention God once, what does it have to teach us about Jesus as a wise and better king? Well, first. Jesus is the wise king that also calls his bride to a feast. You see, Xerxes sent others to get his bride so he could parade her as a spectacle. And when she refused, he sent her away never to see his face again. You see, Jesus didn't send servants to call his bride. Rather, he came for her. Jesus put on flesh. And even though His own people refused and rejected Him, He did not send them away, although He had every right to. Romans 6 says that the wages of sin is death. Separation from God for all eternity. And guess what? Each and every one of us deserves it. Never to see His face again. And yet Jesus took the punishment for us. He endured the wrath that we deserve. Jesus took our banishment. He died. He was forsaken by God so that God would not have to turn His face from us. So that's what we get in Jesus. And so today, again, man, if you're trying to build that kingdom and you're seeing the cracks, let that joker crumble and run to the king. Because ultimately, Jesus is the king that we saw last week. When Jeremy shared from Revelation that invites us to a feast, man, he is preparing a place. And guess what? It's a feast 
that lasts not for 187 days and then the celebration fades. It's a feast that lasts for all eternity. Isaiah 25, 6-8 says this about this feast. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all nations. Verse 8, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. You see, this king removes the veil that separates us from God while simultaneously swallowing up death forever. He he wipes away our tears and reproach. I think I've shared this before, but Paul Tripp does a phenomenal job talking about that. He says, one day... And when Jesus makes all things new, when He comes back and sets all of creation is made new, He says one by one He'll go. And it's this act of Him wiping. You don't have to cry anymore. You don't have to cry anymore. There's no more tears. But what I love most, I think about those verses, is the end. As we see, it says, this can be trusted, Isaiah says, for the Lord has spoken. Even when we can't see it, even when we can't touch it, even when we can't feel it or hear it, God has you here for a purpose. And He will always keep His promises even when we feel He is not there because He has spoken. And ultimately, on the cross, Jesus said what? It's finished. And it was. And so a couple of responses. First, Don't be like Xerxes. Check. Lay down your petty kingdom. Humble yourself. Cast off your rage. Allow your identity to be set in Christ and not the building and sustaining of your ego. Secondly, heed the moments of conviction and accountability as a grace, not as a threat. And then lastly, seek wisdom from above through the Word and in the context of the community of the church. What I don't want you to hear today is, well, Xerxes went to a group of guys and they gave him some poor wisdom. I shouldn't go to anyone. No. The church is not perfect. But we're grounded in the Word. We're going to point you to the Scriptures because that's where wisdom's found. And we need one another. So don't be like Xerxes, but also don't be like Vashti either. Don't refuse the good king who calls you because you've been burned or hurt by others. You see, Jesus is the better king that calls you into the true kingdom, one filled with wisdom, love, joy, and peace. This is the kingdom we're invited into. But also, church, this is the kingdom we're to invite others into. I think as Jeremy started our time today and talked about, man, what he's so encouraged about is we are a church that, man, just wants to invite people in, right? When we talk about our vision mission statement, we invite people to Jesus and we call believers to live out the gospel. May we invite them into this kingdom. Guess what? Center Church is not a kingdom in and of itself. We are a part of the kingdom. But man, let's get people into the kingdom. 
Let's call them to it. Let's invite them in. You see, the world around us is longing for a different kind of celebration. A true and lasting celebration. We've got like 360 days left till January 4th again, right? I mean, y'all even got to celebrate Christmas twice this year. Which was one more than I wanted. But it's okay. (laughs) We have way more to celebrate. May we, the church, model the joy that is only found in Jesus. So I'm going to have the team come back up. And I want to invite you to respond. Maybe you need to spend some time in prayer. Maybe today you're hearing all this and you're like, yeah, I know nothing about that kingdom. And I want to invite you to it today. And I'd love for you to come talk to myself, Jeremy, um, uh, Macy, one of our elders, one of our, if you know one of our partners in the room, they would love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. But if you are a follower of Jesus today, I want to invite you to come and remember what Jesus has done for us. That He is the wise King that was forsaken for us so that we might not be forsaken. And so we're going to share in communion together. I'm going to have Ronnie and Jeremy come up in just a moment and they're going to pass out the elements. And as they pass it out, I want you to remember as you remember His blood that was poured out. Remember the cross, the cost of... man. What Jesus paid for us. As you remember his body being broken. That that this king did not sit far off. But he came and put on flesh. Today if you're not a follower of Jesus. We would ask that you abstain from this. Not to, to shame or cast you aside. To say well no we want you to know what it means. So we invite you into a conversation. About what it means to follow Jesus. And so I'm going to pray for us and then you can come forward and grab the elements and go back to your seat and then I'll lead us in sharing um, in communion together. God, we thank you. We thank you for the hope that we find in your word. For the truth that we see in Esther that even in the midst of moments that we don't see you working, that you are working. That you are making all things new. That we can trust in this because you were forsaken for us. And so Lord, I pray for each person here today, God, that, that, that we uh, would uh, rest in the reality that your promises hold true. That you hold us. May that reality cause us to exalt you and to give your name praise. As we realize and we are reminded of the wonderful things that you have done. Plans formed from mold, faithful and sure as Isaiah says. For you, God, are a stronghold to the poor. A stronghold to the needy in distress. A shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. You subdue the noise. God, we thank you that you swallowed up death that You will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach from Your people. And God, may that embolden us to invite others into this kingdom. That we would not be like Xerxes or Vashti, but that we would look to You. That we would deny ourselves, lay down our kingdoms, allow them to crumble, and look to You who rules in all authority over the eternal kingdom. May that be our hope and proclamation in Jesus' name. Amen.